There's a game that kids so often love to play at pools. I love to play it. It's two people who go out on the edge of the diving board and they start to wrestle to get the other person off. Now, I wasn't ever worried when I was a kid about the risk of this game. But when I became a dad, everything changed, of course. Watch your head against the diving board. Don't hit your elbow on the side deck. Be careful with your younger sister. (laughs) Growing up, we called it king of the mountain. And when you'd smite your foe and put him or her in the water... You'd raise your hands in victory as the king of the mountain. And yes, pride so often came before the fall as you were then so often pushed into the water yourself. Now I thought about this game as I was preparing for this text. You see, we outgrow games like king of the mountain. There's no way I'm playing this with my sons ever again. (laughs) Or do we? Though we're not physically wrestling others to the top spot, we still maneuver so often for recognition, for position. We want to be noticed. And our ways are simply more sophisticated as we have grown older. You see, gamesmanship is the way of the world. We have this innate desire to be great. We crave to be someone. We want to matter. As one pastor said, Nobody wants to be a nobody. And yet Jesus says that greatness is not in accumulating awards or or reaching the heights or garnering attention and having people notice us, but rather it's found in descending, going to the lowest place of service. So as we walk briefly, hopefully, (laughs) through this magnificent text, there are three themes around which I'd like to uh, frame it all. First, we're going to look at the request, then we're going to look at the reversal, and then we're going to look at the ransom. The request, the reversal, the ransom. First, the request. And James and John came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, we would want you to do, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. (laughs) This sounds more like a request or a demand rather than, than a a question, and it shows us that they're still not getting Jesus fully. Their egos seem big, while Jesus allows himself here to be almost like a patient parent, right? Well, it depends what you're asking me. What is it that you're asking me to do? And they say, grant us to sit on your left and your right in your glory. Award us, in other words, positions of honor. They want prestigious cabinet positions. They want to be counted as the important ones. Nobody wants to be a nobody. If social media existed at the time, perhaps they'd want Jesus to help them become more famous influencers, to promote their brand. You see, human nature doesn't change much. And the disciples' self-advancing demand is really something It's really something. Given what we are told in the three verses or two verses immediately preceding the portion that was read today, we are told in verses 32 to 34, and there's a heading there that says it's the third time that Jesus 
foretells that he will go to the cross. That sets up our whole section. And so there he tells the twelve what will happen. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, remember that glorious figure from Daniel, who appears before the Ancient of Days, Jesus takes that designation on himself, and he says the Son of Man will be turned over to the religious authorities, They'll cross-examine him unfairly. That's a paraphrase. Then they'll turn him over to the Roman authorities who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And then three days after that, he will rise. So that's the setup. That's the frame. And in the midst of that, James and John are asking Jesus, hey, can you promote us? Now, we need to understand what may be going on in their minds here. You see, James and John, it seems, want to turn Jesus' messianic journey. He's the Messiah journeying to Jerusalem. And they want this to be a kind of, perhaps, a march to glory. Perhaps they're thinking of this somewhat as a military victory and that they will sit on either side of their victorious king. It may be that they're hearing the the images and the pictures Jesus has been giving them of suffering and death and rising simply as this kind of message. Men, it's going to be tough, but we're going to come out on top. Uh, The British commentary Cranfield, who, who was well known back in the day, he said, whereas Jesus was thinking of a shameful death under the curse of the law, and abandonment by God. He's been saying that throughout. They were thinking of heroic and glorious sufferings in the cause of the Messiah's kingdom. I, you know, it brought to mind Theoden and uh, <laughs> the two towers for death and for glory. Let's go out and ride. Let's face the adversaries. And it seems that the disciples are thinking in those kinds of terms, heroic glory. Now, to some degree, we we could step back and look at our context and say that they are simply ambitious men. And to be ambitious in many ways in our culture, in our time, is a very good thing. It means you're conscientious. It means you're industrious. It means that you set goals and you work toward them. You're not lazy. But friends, in Scripture, uh, ambitious has a darker meaning to it, a much darker meaning. And it was helpful to be reminded this week that it is connected, at least the English word ambitious, it is connected to the root word ambi. And ambi means to go around, to go around. And so one dictionary defines it in this negative way as to go around soliciting votes, hence a striving for favor, a courting of honor. You see, that's exactly the kind of ambition that they are seeking. They are thirsting for popularity. It is vain glory, and yet it is so common. According to a recent poll, uh, it it was stated and and discovered that 72% of Gen Zers uh, say that they would like to be online celebrities. 
that very much expresses this ancient um, um, instinct. And, and the same report also said that only 55% of millennials aspire to fame. Now, before we conclude that each generation is worse and you baby boomers say, oh, those kids, you were known as the me generation. <laughs> uh, Gen Xers are off the hook, apparently. No, no, no. We're all part of this problem. We are all given to this fallen human nature that has always tended to angle for the top spot. And I think that modern technology has only fed the beast and enabled us to do this more and more as time goes on. John Calvin said centuries ago, there was or is no one who does not cherish within himself some opinion of his own preeminence. Or friends, we angle for that. We seek others to affirm that in us. We strive for favor. It's ambi. Ambition, we go around, and that's what the disciples are doing, and we do it too. You see, I, I think this is tricky because it's not just an issue for the boastful or for those who are loudly into bragging. But sometimes, friends, it's the quiet and the introverted as well who want to be the king of the mountain. It can be insecure pastors and social media posters who, who hope for more likes. We, in our own ways, can, can angle for honor, and we drop subtle hints at times about our accomplishments or what we would like people to recognize in us. There, are, there may be a few signs that you're seeking the kind of greatness that Jesus is addressing here. Perhaps you're more concerned about your performance than your impact. You know, preachers can struggle with that. You know, we want to, on Sunday evenings, and our wives can vouch for this, um, you want to go away feeling, I did my best. But the more important, and that's okay, but the more important drive is that people see Christ. Was he lifted up? This can happen when you let people know your sacrifices and how committed you are, and that begins to leak out of you a little bit. Maybe you get a little frustrated when people don't notice. Or you feel secretly competitive with others and not just when you're playing board games. <laughs> but it comes out in other places, in relationships, and it creates tension sometimes. Or perhaps, frankly, and this is a hard thing to, to admit, you get a little bummed when others are noticed in a way that you're not. You see, nobody wants to be a nobody. And someone who depends very heavily on social media for his career, I read this a few years ago, he confessed his struggles, his deep struggles, with what he called seeking salvation by recognition. And that's what these disciples are doing. He wrote, the dark side of being online is that likes, comments, shares, retweets, favorites, followers, friends, visitors, page views, and subscribers become a way to measure our value. And these vanity metrics end up deciding the value of not only our work, but who we are. And so we angle to be on the right and the left of glory. 
Friends, how are you seeking salvation by recognition? How are you, you know, demonstrating the mindset of James and John here? Are you seeking glory and greatness or position through the approval of others, salvation by recognition? These are convicting issues as we look at the request. But now we look at the reversal. Jesus tells them that they have no idea what they're asking. And this section is so full of irony, I I can't delve into all of it, but it's really something. Because remember that this all comes fresh on the heels of the third time that Jesus tells them that he will have to suffer, that he will be treated with utter disdain and contempt. This is not a a heroic kind of suffering that he's talking about. It is one that is full of humiliation. He's basically saying, you want to be on my right and left. Well, who were eventually on Jesus' right and his left? The two thieves who were crucified next to him. And so Jesus is saying to them, to his closest followers, you're asking to travel the road of humiliation with me and for me. And by the way, most of his disciples would to the most little, literal place. A number of them were martyred, some on crosses. So this really did come true. They didn't really yet know what they were asking. And Jesus is saying that the path to glory always goes to and through the cross for him and to some degree for us. He then asked them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Well, the cup is found throughout the Old Testament, and here's just one reference to it. There are many other similar ones in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and so forth. Psalm 75, 8 says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. As a side note, I shared with the staff this week that, you know, in all candor, I sometimes have a hard time, like a number of us do, with the concept of the wrath of God. But then as so many have written recently, when you look at the absolute horror of what Putin's Russia is doing in Ukraine, you begin to see that God's judgment is not something to recoil from so much as to say, thank God that you will bring judgment. Thank God that you will set all wrongs right. And yet, here's the point. Here is the stunning twist. The psalmist says that the evil will drink that cup of God's wrath. But Jesus says that He will drink this cup He will take all the judgment, not just simply for dictators who repent, but for our evil. He will drink the judgment that we deserve, that cup all the way down to the dregs. And so friends, all throughout His journey to Jerusalem, Jesus is pointing to His gracious work on the cross. And He asks His disciples, can you do that with me? Is it for you to drink that cup? Also, he asks them, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? 
Well, Jesus was already baptized at the very beginning of Mark, but we saw that this was prefiguring not baptism in those gentle waters, but baptism on the cross. When Jesus would come under the overwhelming flood of judgment waters for us. Yes, James and John, can you go through that with me? Well, <laughs> you know, he's telling them all these rich meanings of what this is about, what he's about to do. And, and they said, yeah, we can. We're up for it, Jesus. And he's so gracious to them and to us. He says, well, you will suffer. You will drink the cup. You will go through these things on my account. Now, they will not to save themselves, but they will find out later because he has saved them. And they will carry their own crosses as we must as well. He's already taught us that. And then he tells them, but my Father will appoint who sits on my left and my right. That's not for me to give to you. Now then, we, we still are in this very human, fallen situation with these guys. <laughs> because we're told that the ten heard James and John and they were indignant. You can just hear them like, you knuckleheads, what are you talking about? You know? And then they probably started arguing again among themselves who was greatest. They're like brothers fighting, jockeying for position, talking down to one another, and so forth. And maybe the others were relieved that they didn't blurt out their own desires and make fools of themselves, <laughs> that it was simply James and John, at least this time. And then Jesus calls them all to himself for a masterful lesson. He reverses all the values. He turns the world's ways, the world's gamesmanship on it's heads, friends. Verse 42, Jesus got them together, he settled things down, and he told them, in, in essence, worldly leaders, they throw their weight around. And how easy a little power goes to their heads. And we are seeing, again, an incredibly brutal historical display and what Putin and his troops are doing as they lord it over another people and much of the world, and their own people as well. There's this desire there to expand dominance, to lord it over, as Jesus is saying. And yet, it, it's easy to get ourselves off the hook, and we can't, because there are more subtle um, and less monstrous ways that we do lord it over others. And it happens in the church. A, a number of you have listened to or are listening to a podcast series called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it, it deals with so many issues, but it, it relates to leadership in the church, lording it over and using authority uh, to subjugate people in a way eventually rather than serving them. And if you've heard it at the very beginning, they play this bumper or this clip with music and, and the pastor about which it deals with is preaching you know, dynamically from the pulpit. He's very gifted and that can be part of the trap. But he's talking to the men in his church. He's challenging them to be better husbands and leaders. And he starts screaming at them, who do you think you are? I'm not going to do it. 
but he starts yelling at them with just, it just sounds like rage. And when I was playing this in my house on Alexa, you know, doing chores on Mondays or whatever, each time my dog would run out of the room. <laughs> and I'd have to say, Lily, that's not me. It's another preacher. <laughs> it's not me. And yet, and yet, I'm not off the hook. You know, I'm not that kind of personality, but I do know ways that I want attention, I want to be noticed, I can feel bummed if I'm not. You see, you don't have to be overbearing, you don't have to be tempted to try to control people, that's not my thing, it's not the thing of many of you. But Ambi, we do go around and we want to have the kind of glory that James and John were angling for. We just do it in more subtle ways. But again, Jesus flips the world script. He says, it's not going to be that way with you. For whoever wants to be great must become a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. I have said this often over the years. I think it's one of the greatest defenses of the Christian faith. What king who has given all this power and people want him to go take the throne, what king willingly gives it up and says, I will be a slave? It, friends, it doesn't happen. Look at history. Look at current events. It goes in the opposite direction. Those who have power so often want more and are corrupted by it more. And so while the world elevates ego, Jesus says, my followers must not seek to leverage power, but to give it up and to serve. And so to go to the top, you must descend to a place of service. And beautifully, we do see this in the body of Christ. Uh, a few months ago, there was an article that came out uh, about John Stott, who, who was the great churchman, the great scholar, uh, who died... It, back in July, and many of you know of him. We have quoted him often in the church. Uh, he was an Anglican churchman who served the larger body of Christ through his writing, through his speaking. And one of the things about him is he generally avoided getting caught up in sort of the hot topics of the day. I have read so many of his books and mostly commentaries, and it's amazing how at the end of the day, he just explains Scripture so clearly and so winsomely and, and, and smoothly and reasonably and yet with so much conviction. And he did this in humble ways. He, he lived a simple life. Uh, there seemed to be no scandal or hint of scandal around him. And so this article a few months ago was about the fact that on April 27th, John Stott would have been 100. And so it, it was celebrating his almost 100th birthday. And it was contrasting John Stott and his way of service to all of the kind of authoritarian bullying that we're seeing in, in so much of celebrity pastoring. Not all of it, but much of it. And the article said this. On his 100th birthday, let's consider that Stott could have had a much bigger name. Now, his name was big, but it could have been bigger. 
He could have been Archbishop of Canterbury. Could have had a much higher title. Maybe if he lobbied a little more or threw himself into some of the hot topics of the day. But then the article ended this way, and it's so moving. He was willing to be forgotten, and that's why we remember him. He was willing to be dispensable, and that's why we miss him. He was willing to be forgotten, and that's why we remember him. He was willing to be dispensable, and that's why we miss him. I want to be that way, though it's not easy. And you do too, though it's not easy. I remember when I was in seminary, I've mentioned before uh, my philosophy professor, Diogenes Allen, and he taught so many um, wonderful and profound and often at times heady things, but one of his points that I probably remember more than any other is he was talking toward us to the end, at the end of one of his classes, and I took all that he taught, and he said, as you go out into churches, uh, as you seek God's call, as you're trying to figure out what to study, what to say, what degrees to earn after you're here, and you're thinking, you know, what am I called to do? He says, well, here's how it works. If you see a mess on the floor, you go get a broom <laughs> and you sweep up the mess. You, you meet that lowly need in front of you in a humble matter. You ask who needs to be served. And maybe it's not a person of prominence, but, but a person who could use help. And this applies now to us, or a text, or a call, or a meal delivered. Something heavy to be moved, or heavy to be shared. It means that if you're a manager or a boss, you ask, what would it mean to lead others, not by bossing them around and controlling them, but to lead with strength by serving. You find the mess, you get the broom, and you serve, and you clean it up. You see, greatness comes through serving. Being first is in being last or becoming last. So we've looked at the request, we've looked at the reversal, but we have to end here with the ransom. Jesus says all this, that we are to seek greatness by seeking lowliness, by saying, for the Son of Man. For, this is the reason that you do this, because the Son of Man came not to seek others to serve him, but he sought to serve others. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. You see, friends, if we ended this with just follow the example of Jesus, this will pulverize you. You and I can't be good enough or sacrificial enough. I, there are going to be times today where, where your desire to get noticed and to jockey out or, or you know, around and higher than others will leak out of you again. We need our teacher and our example to be our emancipator from the trap of seeking preeminence and position. You see, Jesus drank the cup for you. Jesus was baptized under the waters of judgment for you. And therefore, Jesus ransomed you. He, he brought you back. He bought you back with the price of his own life from the entrapment of the thinking of James and John, the thinking and the ways of the world. Think of this. Jesus 
became king of the mountain by willingly going to the mount of crucifixion. No king does that but Jesus. And because of his lowliness and humiliation, because he sought that lowest position of service, Philippians 2 says that the Father exalted him and gave him a name above every name. And, friends, if you are baptized into him, he confers on you his name. Revelation says that he puts the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit on your forehead. And so, friends, you're not a nobody, you're a somebody. But not through your striving, not through your angling, not through your positioning, not through your jockeying around somebody else. You are a somebody because you're His. And this gives us such a sense of rest. It frees us up. It emancipates us to find opportunities to serve. Not so that people will notice us, but simply so that we might bless them. It is what's been called the freedom of self-forgetfulness. It is humility. The writer and pastor Gavin Ortland has written, Humility is not hiding what you can do or hating what you are. It's not that at all. It's the joy of thinking about yourself less and about Jesus more. And I would add, humility is thinking about others because Jesus thought so much about you that he went to the cross for you. He became your servant to make you his sons and daughters, his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text, for the way it, it, it stunningly shows us the great king of the cosmos becoming a, an abject servant, e even a slave carrying what was a horrible, humiliating, degrading, shameful, spit-upon, painful cross. The worst sign of Roman degradation that was known at the time. And God, we thank you that he went to that lowest place, not only as an example for us, but to become our emancipator. Because God, we are like James and John. We are so given to gamesmanship and jockeying and thinking about our own names and our own legacies. We do it all the time, whether we're extroverts or introverts, we do it all the time. And God, if we're not acting that way, sometimes we're feeling that way. We feel quietly hurt or resentful if we're not getting the recognition that we want and feel that we deserve. God, we are given to all this kind of slavery. And we see the rulers of the world lording it over in utterly demonic, massive ways right now in the world. And yet, God, we also have to be aware of our own entrapments. And so, God, release us from that wrong way of thinking. We thank you that Jesus went to the cross, that he ransomed us, that he was baptized under the waters that swept him away in judgment so that we might be ushered into your presence and that we can finally stop, that we can stop the gainsmanship, that we can simply forget ourselves, think of Christ, 
think of others and serve because he served us in the most radical, beautiful, incredible way that we could ever imagine. Thank you that the king is on the mountain because he went to the Mount of Crucifixion for us. And may we know that we are somebodies in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.